just the night of Jesus' birth. And it's important for us to realize this. It's important for us to gain some lessons for this. So this is after Jesus was born. This is not the same time as the, as the, the, the same scene that we have with the birth uh, scene with the shepherds. This is in a house. It's not in a manger. Now, what do we really get from this, though? Apart from kind of the silly, hey, move your wise men over to the other side of the room to make your manger scene historically accurate. What do we really get from this? First... The main first thing that we get from this is the Gentiles receiving the light. These men were not Jewish people. They weren't Hebrews. They weren't from the Jewish community. They weren't of the old covenant. They were from the east. The the connotation being the far east. Because the west that they traveled to is what we call what? What do we call the region where Israel is today? The Middle East. Like for us, it's still so far to the east that it's the Middle East for us, from our perspective. For these guys, they were so far east that when they got there, they said, we've traveled westward. Like this is the west for us. So these men, there's not a lot of great information about where they may have been from. They could have been from a variety of regions in the East. But they were certainly not Jewish. They were not part of the Old Covenant. They were Gentiles like most of us in the room today. They had not followed the pattern of the law of Moses. They would not followed the sacrifices. They did not have the tabernacle or the temple. They did not have access, at least to our knowledge, of the sacred scripture that was given to the Hebrew people. And yet, somehow, they knew the prophecies about the one who was to be born to be the Messiah. Somewhere along the way in their historical heritage, they had been informed that someone was going to be born who was going to be the king of the Jews, who was going to be savior of the world somehow. Now, the really odd thing, we don't have any record of that. We don't have any description or explanation as to how they knew this. But friends, hear me this morning. They had a profound knowledge of the word of God. A profound knowledge of the birth of the Messiah. They not only had a profound knowledge of it, they had been anticipating the event. And when this oddity in the heavens appeared, this star, they took it as a sign of what they had been expectantly waiting for. Now, we often speak of the Jewish people from the Old Testament prophecies and from the law and from the writings as expectantly awaiting the Messiah and their Savior. And as Paul says in the book of Romans, they have all the advantage They had the priesthood, they had the sacrifices, they had the tabernacle with Moses, they had the temple under David and Solomon, they had the rebuilt temple later on, they had the Levites, they had the testimonies, they had the direct word of God given to them. Every advantage. And so it's 
kind of a no-brainer that they would be expecting and waiting for the Messiah to come. We have little. There's a few indicators in the Old Testament, but little indication that a group of people from the Far East among the Gentiles would be waiting as expectantly for the Savior as the Jewish people were. We know that they're going to be included. We have lots of texts that talk about that. We know that the purpose of the nation of Israel was to spread the glory of God to all of the pagan nations and to make much of the Lord among those who did not know him. And we know that there are a few times where they actually did that. We know there's a whole bunch of times where they didn't. And they got in a lot of trouble for it and breaking the covenant. But we do know that even in the Exodus, there were Gentiles among the Egyptians that left with them. We know that they went into captivity at various times, carrying the truth of the message of the one true God with them. We know that even the likes of King Nebuchadnezzar came to understand that God was the one true God. We have glimpses of Gentile exposure to the truth of God. But we have nothing that would make us even begin to think there's a group of highly intelligent, well-trained people in a region to the far east that are longing for the Messiah like the Hebrews are. And when that star showed up, they knew. He said, hey guys, it's time to go. This is the sign we've been waiting for. And so, of course, what do they do? They leave from where they are. They start making their way to where the star is leading them. It takes them to Jerusalem, the epicenter, the place where they need to be. They go and they say, hey, let's go to the guy who's in charge. Kind of makes sense. He'll know what's going on. So they go to see Herod. And I want you to take a look at Herod's confusion and deception. Now hear this. Men from the far east who did not have access to any of the things that would have helped them were expecting the birth of the Savior, expecting the Messiah. And they showed up to Herod in Jerusalem, the guy who's supposed to be running the show. And they tell him this thing. That's what they say. They ask this question. Where is he who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and we've come to worship him. And Herod heard this. He was troubled. All of Jerusalem was troubled with him. And then notice what Herod does. He gathers together all the religious people to help him understand what's going on. Now, in essence, Herod was functioning as a king of the Jews. He wasn't the king of the Jews. Rome would not have allowed him to have taken such a title. But that's functionally who he was. He was the guy running the show for the Jewish nation on behalf of Rome. And when these guys, these Gentiles show up from the far east and they say, hey, where's the Messiah? We know he's been born. Star, let us hear. We come to ask you guys, where's he at? We want to worship him. All the people who should have known were like, what? They had no idea. It echoes John's incarnational story in John 1. And he came to his own and his own did not receive him. He was born in a manger, backside of nowhere. And shepherds, lowly nighttime shepherds had to come and sing his praises. And then, apparently, information we do not have. 
They hung around Bethlehem for a while. They didn't go back home right away. Because he's at a house, not in a manger. They're either staying short term with a relative. They found a rental place. They decide to relocate their business. We don't know. But what we do know is they're, they're, they're still there. Not in a feeding trough. And so Herod, in his confusion, gathers together all the religious leaders and says, okay, guys, how's this supposed to shake out? Where's the Messiah actually supposed to be born? Now, I don't want to be rude and I don't want to be crass toward Herod. But if you're technically on paper, the functional king of the Jewish people, I'd like to think you'd at least have some basic knowledge about, you know, your Messiah, the guy everybody's waiting for person you're supposed to be praying for, like longing for, hoping for. Like you'd at least have the, hey, he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. That's where he's supposed to be born. So he gets all these leaders together and they show him the scripture. They show him that, hey, this is what the text says. He's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. Okay. All right, so he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. All right, great. So Herod then tells the wise men, hey, tell you what, we figured it out. He's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. Why don't you go see if you can find him? Come back and let us know about it and we will come worship him with you. Now, we know the end of the story. We're not covering that today. We know full well that's not Herod's intent. Herod's intent was full of malice. Like any power-hungry politician, he wanted to get as much competition out of the way that he could. And we know that when the wise men... They leave and they pull the wool over his eyes and they take off and they go a different way and they don't tell him what's going on. Herod, to hedge his bets, based on the time that they told him when they'd seen the star and started traveling, does a little math and says, okay, every male child in the village that's age two or younger, by the way, shows you how long it probably has been since the incident with the shepherds and the angels. Every kid two and under that's a male needs to die. We got to make sure we get this kid. Horrible. I know that we complain every 4th November year about, you know, the options that we have. But come on. Hey, why don't y'all just go kill all the boys two and under so that I can make sure that I get this guy. That's what we should do. And he covers it in the deception of worship. Hey, go find the kid so I can come worship him. Knowing full well he wanted that kid to die. We don't need a Messiah. We don't need another king. I'm in good with the Romans. I don't care if he's come to save us from our sins. I don't care if he's come to deliver us. I don't care if he's come to bring glory back to the nation of Israel. I want him dead. Now, I want you to hear the powerful distinction in the story. The Gentiles from the Far East who shouldn't have known anything about this came to worship the King of the Jews as a Savior of the world. And the Jewish leaders who should have known everything about this and have been anticipating it their whole lives, the response of their leader was, let's kill this guy. Sin's crazy thing, isn't it? That makes us do crazy things. And so we see Herod's confusion. We see his deception. He didn't know the word of God. He had no desire to worship the true king. And friends, I worry 
that in our lives, those of us who should know, we should know the story of the one true king. We should long for the Messiah. We should have a great desire for Christ Jesus, just like the Jewish people should have had. And yet, many of us, if we're honest, truly examine ourselves, we find Jesus to be substantially inconvenient. To be a bit of a bother, something of a trouble. And we cover up the angst that we have with the Lord in our hearts through a false sense of worship. Just like Herod. So, Magi at this moment, unaware of Herod's deception, leave and continue to follow the star. And it arrives at a house, not a manger. They've settled in. And so they saw it. They had this exceeding joy. They came to the house. They saw the child with Mary, his mother. And then notice what it says that they did. They fell to the ground and worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. The important thing here beyond just the posture of these magi, and it's a posture of worship. Notice they understood him to be more than just a king. There's plenty of words in the Greek language that can express bowing down in reverence to an authority. And it's not the word for worship. They understood something was very different about this child king. And I want you to also notice that no one in the house told them not to do it. There was an understanding of the people in the house that this was okay. Again, like I said a few weeks ago, Mary, did you know? She knew a whole lot more than the song implies. A whole lot more. I love the song, but she knew a whole lot of stuff. But I want us to notice the gifts That these men bring. How many were there? We always speak of three, but there's no certainty to that. There's three gifts. So we typically assign three persons. It could have been just a couple. It could have been a dozen. We really don't know. I guarantee you, if these men were traveling with these kinds of gifts, it was a large caravan of people. Likely with soldiers and servants and people to protect them. It wasn't just a couple of guys carrying these wealth chests through who knows how many dangerous deserts and wilderness to get from the Far East to where they are in the West. I'm sure it was quite a sight to see this group of people coming to this house, this poor carpenter's house, whether it's a family house, rented house, his new house, we don't know. And this poor girl, Mary, and her young child, Jesus. I'm sure it was the buzz of the neighborhood for quite some time. Did you see who showed up at Mary's place? Like I can, I can hear it because, you know, Baptists have been going since way back when. But I want you to notice these gifts that they bring, no matter how many there are, these gifts that they bring and, and the value of these gifts. First, they brought gold. Gold has been a valuable thing for a long time. 
It's been used as a monetary value itself or a monetary exchange value for millennia. Everyone, everywhere, for the most part, understands that gold is ridiculously valuable. Like that, that crosses lots of, otherwise there's barriers. You know, there might be cultural barriers, ethnic barriers, educational barriers, you know, language barriers. But you slap some gold on the table, a lot of barriers just break down. People just sort of get it. They go, wow, okay. This is the kind of conversation that we're having. And they brought gold to Jesus. Now, the the gift of gold, especially in this culture at this time, was a gift reserved for those of the highest position. Those who had the highest level of importance and value. You didn't bring gold to a pauper. You didn't bring gold to a poor man. You didn't bring gold to a criminal or a thief. Or some other kind of person like that. You brought gold to someone who had exceptional worth and value in the society and in the culture. You brought it to a leader. You brought it to a king. You used it to make your idols in your temples of worship. You plated it around the place where you worshipped your God. That's why the temple during Jesus' day was considered one of the great wonders of the world. Why? Because it was covered all over in gold. The writings that we have from history uh, uh, that are still in existence that remember the visual look of the temple before it was destroyed by the Romans said that as you came up on it on a bright sunny day, you couldn't look directly at it. It was like the glow of the sun. It had so much gold on it. This is what you do with gold. You demonstrate the great worth and value of the thing that you're giving it to. So they brought gold with them. Why? Because Jesus is worthy. Now, I want to tell you a little something, though, about bringing gold to Jesus. He's going to use it in a way that we wouldn't. We'd save it. We'd use it, exchange it. We'd buy stuff with it. We'd invest it. Jesus makes streets out of it because it's really not that valuable to him. There's a reason why in the heavenly temple that's described in the book of Revelation, the streets are paved with gold. Because it's worthless compared to the lamb who is there. But they brought him gold and it's a valuable thing. They also brought him frankincense. Frankincense is incredibly valuable throughout many different religious systems, particularly the Jewish system of worship. Incense was of great value. You see it all the way back in Exodus, the burning of incense. You see it in Leviticus at the establishment of the sacrificial law and the process of of that. All throughout, you see the, the, the burning of the wrong kind of incense as a capital crime that God himself actually, there's a strange fire that's being burned, a strange smell of incense that's coming up to my nostrils and it and it actually brings capital punishment against those who would do such a thing you see even in this heavenly temple in the book of revelation this incense that burns before the lord forever it is the sort of thing that you bring to the divine it is a gift of worship for your deity and these men brought this valuable thing 
to Jesus. And then they also brought him myrrh. And I'm going to move into the symbolism of these things in just a moment. But they brought to him myrrh, which was sort of a perfume ointment that you would use predominantly, not only for this reason, but predominantly to prepare bodies for burial. That was the main use of it. And it wasn't cheap. It was very expensive. Now, why is it that these valuable things are, 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 are useful in the moment? Let's not talk about their symbolism for a second. Let's talk about for the moment. They're about to find out that Herod wants to kill Jesus. Joseph's a carpenter. He does okay. Mary's a young girl. They have a small baby with them. They don't have a lot. They're about to have to take a very long and aggressive road trip to Egypt to keep Jesus alive. You know what would be really helpful to make that work out? Money. I know a lot of people say, you know, money can't buy you happiness. But you know what? It can buy you plane tickets and tacos. And that's just about the same thing. They were terrified. They were afraid. They were in distress. Their lives were in chaos. But I guarantee you having some gold and some frankincense and myrrh that they could sell at the market and make their way from Bethlehem to Egypt and find a place to stay when they got down there and feed themselves until they knew it was safe to come back. I bet that alleviated a little bit of the stress. It was a very practical thing that God was doing, having these men show up and bring them these gifts. Because you know what? Our God isn't just high ivory tower theological. He's very practical most of the time. And he meets our real needs in day-to-day life. But there's a lot of symbolism in these gifts. Gold is the gift of the king. Gold represents sovereignty. It represents one who rules and reigns. It's more than just economic power that's found in gold. You can have all manner of economic power and not have any gold at all. But it's a pure and a precious metal. And when put into the right hands, can make beautiful, ornate things. And we see it all throughout the scriptures, especially in the idea of being crowned with glory. Crowned with gold. The precious jewels and the ornaments around the temple and on the temple walls and that covered the temple sacrificial areas. Highly valuable, but full of great symbolism. Frankincense. Not just valuable, but as I said a moment ago, what you use to worship your deity. All throughout the Old Testament and even into the New Testament, the picture of burning incense as a fragrant aroma that was pleasing to the Lord. These men have not only acknowledged Jesus as their king, but they have acknowledged Jesus as their God. Before anybody else really did. The people who should have known that that's what he was going to be. What was it that they wanted to kill Jesus for all those times in his ministry? Blasphemy. 
You are making yourself equal with God. How can you, a man not yet 50, claim that Abraham has seen his day before Abraham was, I am. And they picked up rocks to stone him. For what miracle are you going to stone me? Not for any miracle that you've done, but because you have made yourself equal with God. His own people did not understand. And yet these men from the far east who were Gentiles, who had no access to any of this that we are aware of, came and declared him to be their God. We bring incense to worship our deity. And then finally, in a prophetic way, a profoundly prophetic way, they brought myrrh. Why would you do that? It's this little kid. Either just shortly off of being newborn or as old as two, somewhere in that range. Barely toddler down. That's his range. Why would you bring him embalming ointment for a funeral? Why would you do that? Because in some profound way that we don't understand, these wise men from the East understood that if he was going to be able to be our king and was going to be able to be our God, he would have to be our king and our God who died for us. He was not just going to be our king. He was not just going to be our God, but he was also going to be our priest and sacrifice. And they understood that through the death of this child, in some profound way, that is what would bring about the salvation of the world. And their gift reflected that. We honor you as our king with gold. We honor you as our God with incense. We honor you as our priest and sacrifice with myrrh. And they did it all on their knees. Friends, Christmas doesn't stop when we light the last Advent candle on the 24th. And it doesn't stop once all the presents are opened or on the 25th. And it doesn't stop when we get back to regular worship songs on the 26th, the Sunday that falls after Christmas. Christmas is a continuing story. And truly wise men, truly wise women continue to seek Jesus as king and God and sacrifice long after the manger is empty. Let us follow the pattern of these wise men from the east. And let us fall on our knees and worship Christ our Savior. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Thank you for the story of these men coming from a far off land, making great sacrifices, danger to themselves, that they might find the one born, the king of the Jews, and worship him. And when they found him, fell on their knees and worshiped him and gave him gifts worthy of king and God and priest and sacrifice. Father, may our lives be marked out the same way. Seeking Jesus 
diligently to worship him fully. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I invite you to stand as we sing.